Grab your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 5. And while you're at it, also bookmark 2 Peter 1. Galatians chapter 5. If you recall, two weeks ago we began a series teaching on the portion of Scripture in Galatians 5, 16 through 26. It's the portion of Scripture which Paul encourages them to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. He discusses what the works of the flesh are. And then he goes into what the fruit of the Spirit are. And two weeks ago, in a sort of introductory uh, type message, I kind of recapped what the book of Galatians is about, the theme being justified by faith, that it's the law that brought bondage. And the law told us that we were sinful and we stood um, guilty before God, but Jesus, faith in Jesus brings, bring, by his spirit brings life and it brings uh, deliverance from our sin and from the law and now we have new life in Christ and now we have his spirit within us that cries out, Abba, Father, we're made sons of God. We are our, our uh, people of promise. And, um, and so we looked at the first week about what it means to walk in the spirit, what it means to walk in the spirit as opposed to not walking in the lust of our flesh. And last week, we looked at the works of the flesh. And today, we're not going to delve into the non-specific fruit of the Spirit that Paul discussed, but I'm going, I'm going to, to, to discuss a prerequisite, if you will, and what is necessary for the fruit of the Spirit to be developed, cultivated, and to, to be grown in our lives, a particular godly characteristic and tra trait that is absolutely necessary. But I'm going to go ahead and read this portion of Scripture so we can put it fresh on our minds and then immediately turn to 2 Peter 1, 5 and 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. And which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things, that is, those who, who habitually walk in and practice such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1 very quickly. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 2. Peter, in his second letter, he writes in verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has 
given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Okay? His divine power through the Spirit. The law had no power to change the heart. The law had no power to deliver you from sin. The law was perfect and holy, and all it did was, was, was there to prove that you were unholy and that you were guilty before God. But through the Spirit of Christ, simply by faith and trusting in Him, He has exchanged a heart of stone for a heart of flesh, and He has put His Spirit within me and made me a new creation. And it's not just, it's not just me now conforming to some outward law and rule. It's now His divine power. His actual spirit, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the, raised Jesus from the dead, has been placed in me by faith, not by works of the law. And now, he says, that uh, his divine power has been given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This is the intention and will of God, that through the divine power of His Spirit, He would produce a divine nature so that you would imitate and look like your Father which is in heaven. That is His intention by putting His Spirit in you. And this correlates to Galatians chapter 5 in that all those fruit of the Spirit are contrary to the works of the flesh. And it's only by His power, it's only by His Spirit that you can walk in those fruit of the Spirit. So that you look like Jesus, you walk like your Father. That if you live in the Spirit, that is, no, under, no longer under the law, but you live under the Spirit of Christ, you now can by his power, walk in his divine nature. You now can walk in the Spirit. You can walk in the Spirit. So this evening, I want to share with you something that's an, that is an absolute prerequisite for us to walk in this divine nature by him granting us this divine power so that the fruit of the Spirit, Christ's likeness, godliness, would be produced in our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, for your people. I thank you for the gathering of your body individually. When it comes together, what a glorious and beautiful thing it is, God. Help us to be encouraged in your word here tonight, God. I just pray, God, you would speak to us, God, not, not just in our mind, but, Lord, to our spirits. Would you encourage us here tonight, God? Draw us closer to you. Give us a greater understanding of who you are. Let us see your beauty, Jesus. Let us see your person. Let us be conformed to your likeness because we see you in a greater light here today and we, are, we thirst and we hunger for you here tonight and we desire nothing but to be like you and to glorify you. God, make that the desire of our heart here today that by your divine power, Lord, we can exhibit your divine nature because of your many precious and precious promises you've given to us and what you've put in us and what you've said to us. God, help us to believe that here tonight in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. Amen. This prerequisite that I want to speak of before we even get into the nine gifts of the Spirit, which, by the way, are not an exhaustive list. There are plenty of other godly characteristics that Paul could have added to these nine 
It's a good starting point in the same way that he could have added to the works of the flesh. You could go on and on as far as the godly characteristics that he wants to produce in our lives. But before I even get into love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, before we even get into that, I want to discuss something with you to hear today that is absolutely necessary to be cultivated in your life if any of those things are even going to take root. And this thing is as simple as it gets. It is humility. It is lowliness of heart. It is lowliness of heart and position and prostration before the Lord. The reason I want to talk about humility tonight is because this is what opens the way to all other godly character traits. It is the soil in which the other traits of the fruit of the Spirit grow. It grows from that place. It, it comes from that place. And when we look at humility, this is almost a paradox, but truly, humility is grounded in the character of God. And all-eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, humility is grounded in the nature of the God I serve, who has created all things by the word of his mouth. It is grounded in his very nature. For it says in Psalms 113, 4 and 9, The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high? Nobody. He's high, he's lofty, he's lifted up. He's far above all, all of creation. But it says here in verse 6, Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap, that he may seat him with princes, with the princes of his people. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. The father, he stoops down to help the poor and needy. And God, though he is eternal and everlasting and high and lifted up and all-powerful, he cannot meet the need of the barren, of the needy, of the lowly unless he himself stoops down and condescends to the need of human beings. God Almighty, that is in his nature, to stoop. Just that, just that, that thought here... Oftentimes, I will go to, there's a particular park in Beaumont. I think it's, is it Wyndham Park or Wortham Park? Right there in Delaware, because it's down, down the road from my office. That's, that's my, my prayer closet, oftentimes, many times during the week. I'll just go and walk and just pray. And, and I was just thinking today, crying on that path, just thinking about God stoops. God stoops. He stoops down to me. He condescends to me. Like, that is his nature. That's what he does. Because he has made us in his likeness, in his image. And he has given us the capacity to communicate with him and to receive from him. And I cannot go to him. He has to stoop down to me. And that's his Old Testament scripture. And he did it continuously in the Old Testament. Made himself real to the lowly, to the, to the barren, to the needy, to the poor. He, he's condescended. That is the nature of God. That is, and, it's not, and it's not contradictory to his power and his omniscience. And it is fully manifest in the incarnate Son who came down to us in flesh. 
The ultimate and supreme example of God condescending was the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived among us. He was born as a baby. And all of the crying and the blood and the filth of that manger and the scene around you, he was born into this world just like you and like me. The Son of God came in likeness of men, in likeness of flesh. From the manger to the cross, the life of Jesus was noted by continual humility, continual lowliness. Lowliness and meekness, those are not weakness. It's not the same thing. Meekness is not weakness. Humility is not weakness. It is a willful submission of self to God. And Jesus was continually dependent upon the Father. He says, I only say what he tells me to say. I only do what he tells me to do. It's the Father's commandment that I am living out before you. I'm reading John right now, the Gospel of John, and he just continuously speaks of the Father, the Father, the Father. He's come to manifest the Father. He only does what the Father does and what the Father says. And the, the life of Jesus, God incarnate, who, who all things were created through him, by him, for him, he's eternal. He steps into time, becomes a baby, and then constrains himself to the limits of our human existence. And not only that in bodily form, but he himself humbles himself to mere humans. God Almighty humbled himself before Mary and Joseph, his parents. He was a good Jewish boy. He was obedient always. This is God incarnate, and he is obeying the people he created. Think about that. And so it's exhibited from the manger to the cross. The first thing that John, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And we learn through the life of Jesus, and it's a lifetime of learning for me, that if I will be great in the kingdom of God, I must be a servant to all. I must be lowly and humble and think little of myself, much of God, and serve the people around me. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He exhibited perfect dependence upon the Father and humility before the Father and humility before people. He made himself subject to time, to physical limits, and then also to mere human beings. And it's further seen in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, where he says, I am meek and lowly. I'm humble at heart. Come and learn from me. Come and learn from me. Listen, I'm all about power. I'm all about might and strength and victory. But none of those things come except on the other side, that is through humility, through weakness, through dependence, through lowliness. You, you cannot gain strength by exhibiting your own strength. You cannot gain power by exhibiting your own power. It's a life, it's a paradoxical life in Christ. It's a life of contradictions, if you will. If I will be strong in the Lord, I must become weak. I must become nothing. And so that's what Jesus did himself. He humbled himself, made himself subject to humankind. And as we learned in week one, 
as we are freed from the bondage of the law and sin by receiving the promise of the Spirit through faith, which justifies us before God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead has given life to our mortal bodies. And now we are made children of God. We have His divine nature in us, the Spirit being sent forth into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And so then it is through the Spirit of God that we can put off the works of the flesh, walk in the Spirit, wherein the fruit of the Spirit made manifest in our lives. And the Holy Spirit only comes to the cry and to the, the, the heart positionally that is humble. It is only to that heart which is humble. And our very salvation is due to humility. Not yours, but Jesus's. Our very salvation is de dependent upon the humility of God Almighty who condescended and took on the form of flesh. He abandoned his privileges on high. He thought it nothing to be considered equal with God. And he, he um, abandoned his privileges and emptied himself of his privileges on high. He came in the likeness of flesh as a bondservant, became servant as to all men, and became obedient even to the point of the cross. That's what Jesus did. Now, we know in John 3.16 and other places throughout the Word of God, his motivation, the motivation for the Father to send the Son, for the Son to come was, for God so loved that he gave his only begotten Son. Because he loves. Because he loves. He loved us while yet we were still sinners, dead in our sin and our trespasses. He loved us while yet we were enemies of God. But all the love of Jesus while yet in heaven was not enough to save us. He had to condescend. And so love was the why, humility was the how. Love was the why. That's what motivated him. His unconditional love for people who had rebelled and hated him. He loved them. And that's what motivated him. But he could not die for them on a cross while yet still in heaven. And so he condescended, he came down, he lived among us, he humbled himself. And because of the humility, not of you, but because of Jesus... We now have access to the Father through his blood. Because behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the meek and lowly and perfect Lamb. And so, it is God's intention that we would bear, and be, bear his image and be imitators of our Father in heaven. And primarily through Christ-likeness. And Paul gives us a wonderful list to start with in Galatians chapter 5. The first, these nine work or fruit of the Spirit. And none of those things can be cultivated in your life. Christ-likeness cannot be cultivated in your life except through humility. And so this is the soil in which all these other things are planted and they grow out of. Okay? And so, bear with me here for a moment. And let me just, let me just tell you declare to you in the negative, okay, what will happen, what is our demise if we do not walk in humility, okay? I often like to post things in the positive. I'm going to pose it in the negative, that without humility, this will happen, okay? So, number one, without humility... Our destination is unreached. Without humility, our destination is unreached. How many of you men, you've been riding in the vehicle with your wife, 
You're in a uh, highly populated area, maybe um, Houston, Dallas, and you are driving along. You're trying to get from point A to point B. You're driving down the highway, and your wife, she finally says it. Those words finally come out of her mouth. Honey, do you know where you're going? And your response, of course, is, I know exactly where I'm at. I know exactly where I'm going. I'm going north, north, south, east. That's where I'm going. And then she says, I don't know that you know where you're going. Then she says this. Here's the next level. Why don't you pull over and ask somebody? And ladies, you got to realize, ooh, you got to realize. Obviously, you don't realize by asking that question, but you got to understand. To ask us to pull over and ask somebody for a help is an attack on our very manhood. Okay? Because every man was born with an innate sense of direction, or at least that's how it's supposed to be. And what you are telling them in a nice way is you don't know what you're doing. And you're trying to tell her, I know exactly what I'm doing. And so, you will drive and drive and drive and hope and hope and hope you can figure this out and you're splitting bullets all along. And you're just hoping, I, th I think this is the exit. Hopefully this is the exit. This street runs parallel to this street. This one runs north. Surely if I turn this way, I'll, I'll get in that vicinity. Okay? And, and you're just hoping maybe it's this light. Maybe it's this one. And, and maybe you just get lucky and you're praying, oh, God, help me. I don't want to just see how weak I am. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. This is my vehicle. I'm the navigator of this truck. And all this energy is expended to avoid asking for help. And likewise, a lack of humility can really get in the way of reaching your destination. You could have 10 miles back, 30 minutes back, you could have just broken down, humbled yourself and said, yeah, I have no idea where we're at. I need help. And you would get to your destination a lot quicker when you admit, I do not know and I do need help. And so, without humility, our destination is unreached. And in the first place, for the unbeliever, <clears throat> speaking to the unbeliever, the non-Christian, that destination for the unbeliever would be faith in Christ. That's the ultimate destination, if you will, for the, the, the non-believer. If you recall in Luke chapter 18, where Jesus tells the parable, and he begins the parable by saying he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And he talked about how a Pharisee and a tax collector went down to the temple and the Pharisee, he stood up with his chest puffed out and he spoke, I thank you, God, 
that I'm not like other people. And I thank you I'm not like this tax collector. And I thank you that I'm so righteous and that I tithe. And I'm so good and I'm so holy. And he's standing there in his profusive pride. And then the tax collector, he has his head bowed and he can't even look up. And he's beating his chest and he's saying, oh God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that second man, the tax collector, he went away justified. Because he's the one who said, I don't know how to save myself. I'm not good. I can't get to heaven in my own strength, my own power, my own cleverness, my own wisdom. I cannot save myself. And listen, there are plenty of prideful people in the bar and plenty of prideful people on the pew. There's pride everywhere. There's a religious pride. There's a heathenistic pride, if you will. There's a pride in how holy I am within the terms of the law and the Bible. And I thank you, God. I go to church and I tithe and I do this and I do that. And you're full. You're full of dead men's bones. And your heart is far from God. And that's your, you're trusting in your own righteousness. That's being self-righteous. But you, you know the greatest blockade for any person coming to Christ? Yes, they love darkness more than light. Yes, they love their sin. But they also love themselves. It is self-righteousness. At the crux of it all, the person who keeps, the, what, the reason that a person does not come to Christ and the reason they don't see it necessary is because they don't see how, of a, how much of a wretch they are. They think they are righteous and do not need a Savior. I don't need help. I know what I'm doing. I'm good. I'm holy. But the Bible tells us all have fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person. All, have, all like sheep have strayed and have gone away. Every single person. Every single person. And so it is the world may accuse the church of being self-righteous. And of course there's prideful people on the pew. There's self-righteous people in the church. But they don't realize it's their own self-righteousness that keeps them from falling down prostrate before a holy God whom they've sinned against and leaning and trusting upon him. They're trusting in their own goodness. And your own goodness is as filthy rags. It's not enough. It's not enough. And so in the pride of, of people's hearts, it keeps them from running to the feet of Jesus and that's what the Pharisees and the religious hypocrites and the scribes and the lawyers and the, the powerful people, the wealthy people, the rulers, all of them were trusting in their own selves and their own goodness and their position and who they were. And it was usually the poor and the lowly and the, the lame and the outcasts that came to Jesus. The theme verse of this church, Grace River Chapel, it's a proverb, and I think it's Proverbs chapter 3. And Peter quotes this proverb, and James quotes this proverb. And it's kind of the foundation for the, well, how we named this church. Peter says it in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, and James says it in uh, James 4.6. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. And we call this church Grace River Chapel because any, any water will always go to the lowest place. So every river, 
it's eventually going to end up in the ocean because of gravity. It starts in a northern origin and always goes down, always rushes down, always goes down. It may start in some, some little spring up in a mountain or maybe run off from snow or whatever it is or tributaries that all come to this one place. It eventually goes to the lowest place on earth, which is sea level. And grace will always find its place. It's always rushing down, always going down to the lowest place. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And here's what James says in James chapter 4. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. My goodness. What grace is offered to a rebellious individual, a rebellious people? Draw near to God. He'll draw near to me. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of God, and he will lift you up. Oh, that's the greatest call to a rebellious, wretched people who are so full of themselves. Humble yourself in the sight of a mighty God, and he will lift you up. He will give you the grace the favor, the mercy that you don't deserve, he's going to give it to you. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. And that's a choice that every person has to, has to make. On this, in the second sense, without humility, our destination is unreached. For the believer, that destination, what I intend to meaning the destination, that is the will of God. In Christ, that is the will of God. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Listen, we can waste a lot of time and resources and, uh, and, ex and experience a lot of heartache because we've trusted in our own cleverness, our own strength. We thought, I got this. Have you ever heard the quote, a, a, day, a, a day without prayer is a boast against God? A day without prayer is saying, God, I don't need you. I got this. I, I can make my own way. This is even as a Christian, okay? Because God cares about every decision in your life. He cares about the trajectory of your life, the trajectory of your career, who you marry, where you go, how you spend your money, where you go to church, how you raise your family. He cares about all these things. And the Bible tells us that his ways are best. It, and he desires that we as Christians, as children, that we be in perfect dependence upon him and that we would look to him and lean not on our own understanding, but lean on his and acknowledge his ways. And as I acknowledge his ways and I submit to his ways, he will direct my path. He'll bring me to the destination. He'll bring me to the will of God. He'll lead me to make the right decisions. Listen, we will make wrong decisions because you're not perfect. You're not all-knowing. But what matters is that you are continuously humble before God and say, God, I want to please you. I want to make the right decisions. I want to glorify you. I, I, really, I really want to do everything with prayer and supplication and meditation upon your word. I don't want to get this wrong. He will direct your path. He won't lead you to a dead end. He won't lead you across town and you're wondering, oh boy, how do I get back? But haven't, ha have you ever found yourself? I surely have. I have found myself on the other side of town because I trusted in my own instincts, my own sense of direction. I know the Bible pretty good. I'm pretty spiritual. I got this. I can figure this out. 
I, th this person said this is a good idea. They're spiritual too. That's a good idea. And we don't consult the Lord. We don't look to him. And we're not continuously just looking at him and saying, what would you have me to do? What would you, where would you have me to go? There has to be a declaration of dependence in our lives. This country was started with the declaration of independence. There has to be a declaration of dependence. And that is a humility. That is what humility is. It's absolute dependence. An abandonment of self-reliance and self-confidence. Listen, God wants you to be needy. Every, every, just about more often than not, when I leave the house in the morning, Oliver is crying. He is a daddy's boy. He, he looks like me. He loves me. He's a daddy's boy. And I love him so much. And, and our, our habit every morning is, is that there's three things. They get a hug, a kiss, and a high five. That's the three things. Okay, I want a hug. I want a kiss. Okay, now a high five. Now, we may do those series of habits 10, 15 times before I can get out the door. And he's clinging to me. Dad, I don't want you to go to work. He just wakes up clinging to me sometimes for no reason. And he's crying for me. Don't go to work. Don't go. No. And it just kills you, doesn't it? He's, he's clinging to me. He's needy, okay? Over the course of, of time that I've been in ministry, for the past, you know, 12, 13 years working in youth ministry in various places and various churches, mentoring and helping youth and others, you know, there are people that you will help and, they, and they'll say when you're, when you're, because you're called to as a minister to really give your life to these people and, and, and invest in them and mentor them. And some of these people, they start to feel bad and they say, I just feel like I'm bothering you too much. I just feel like I, I, I'm just pestering you. And I say, no, that's what I'm here for because that is the nature of God. He wants you to be needy. Like, like always, God, what do I do? What, what, what do you say? I, I need you. I'm clinging to you. I need you. I need you. I can't go a day without consulting you, looking at you. Hug, kiss, high five. I, gotta, I, have, I have to know what you're doing, where you're going, what your will is, what your mind is. Okay? Um. That's his desire for us. And, and no man can replace God. But a pastor is here. Mentors are here to help us and lead us to Jesus. And, and that is my example. Jesus met the needs of the needy. And so that's what we're here to do. That's what the church is here to do. Just on a side note, I, that's what I'm here to do. To, to love God, to receive strength from him, and then strengthen other people. Because that is the heart of God. He exhibits that. He wants that to be the position of our heart, a neediness for him, a neediness for him. And so because of that, we can come boldly to the throne of grace so that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There is plentiful grace and mercy available to you. And it doesn't take intellect, special strength, special knowledge. It just takes be nothing. Be nothing. And he will direct your path and he will bless your life. He'll bless your marriage. He'll bless your children. He'll lead you. Using his wisdom, he'll lead you to make the right decisions so that you don't end up in the wrong destination. 
We can come boldly to the throne of grace. We can come boldly, not arrogantly, but we can come boldly because of what Jesus has done upon the cross. We can come to the throne of grace so that we may obtain mercy and grace to help in our time of need. I need him every moment. I need him every moment. Number two, without humility, our pain is extended. Without humility, our pain is extended. Little Henry, our third child, he's now one years old, 16, almost 16 months. Um, so we had Lily at the hospital, and then we had uh, the two others at home with a midwife. Yeah, I know we're weird, but, but that's what we did. And so we had Henry at, at, at the house, and, and uh, we're, we're in the room, and the midwife, she's done like 2,000 deliveries, like she knows what she's doing. But the thing with deliveries and the things with, with the position of babies in, in in the mama's belly is that they need to be positioned properly if they're going to be delivered properly. And the ideal position is that a baby would be, they're going to be upside down and their head facing the mother's back. And between 32 to 36 weeks, they kind of settle in that position, okay? That's the ideal position. But, but, and so that's face down, okay? That's face down. When they come out, they're face down. But if a child is face up, it makes it extremely hard for that child to come out Physiologically, it's not meant to work that way, and it can cause uh, a prolonged uh, delivery, a prolonged labor. Um, it can eventually lead to complications that require a C-section. Um, and, and really, throughout this whole process, it increases the pain. The longer you're in delivery, the longer you're pushing, there's a lot of pain. And Henry was positioned wrong, and, and we didn't realize that, and it was really hard for him to come out. And I've shared the story in the past, but... Um, really hard for him to come out. And my point in saying that is this, that if we stay face down before God, if we stay face down before God and not lift ourselves up in haughtiness, we would save ourselves a lot of pain. We would save our spouse a lot of pain. We would save our children a lot of pain. We would save our church a lot of pain. You would save yourself a lot of pain if you would keep yourself prostrate, your face down before God Almighty. So we must be, first of all, face down before God Almighty. Humility toward God is akin to the fear of God. It begins with a high view of God's person. As we see God in his majesty, awesomeness, and holiness, we are humbled before him. In every occasion in the scripture in which man was privileged to view God in his glory, okay, every single Bible character where they were given the privilege to view God in some unique, glorious way, it was always in conjunction with their lowliness, and when they were exposed to God's glory, they were always brought low and humbled in his presence, every single one of them. No man can boast in the presence of God. No man. Moses bowed to the ground in worship. Isaiah cried, woe is me. Ezekiel fell face down. John fell at his feet as though dead. Even the four living creatures and the 24 elders in heaven of revelations fell down before the throne of the glorified Lamb. Our lack of humility before a holy God will lead to pain. Our lack of putting our faces down and seeking him 
or exacerbate our relationships. It will not bring blessing to the interactions of life. It will, we will hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness and hold it against people and walk in this wearied place. If we're not, we're not face down before a holy and righteous God, we must be face down before the Word of God, that is, the Bible. Just as Josiah, when he became king, they rediscovered the law, the Word of God, which is the will of God. And he humbly responded to the word of the Lord by tearing his robes and saying, Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. I would encourage you, humble yourself and submit yourself to the word of God. Just simply obey it and submit to it, and it will alleviate much heartache. It will alleviate much pain in your life. It will lead to freedom. It will lead to deliverance in your life. Don't dispute the word of God. Simply obey it. Thirdly, face down before people. I have one more point after this. We must be face down before people. A believer who is humble before God will also be humble toward other people. And just as Jesus was subject from the moment he was born, he obeyed his parents. As I spoke over the first, he made himself submissive to the law, which he wrote. He made himself submissive to, the, the, to biology and the limitations of the world. He, he submitted himself to the Father. He submitted himself to people. He made himself a servant to all. And a true test of your humility is, are you humble before your husband? Are you humble before your wife? Are you humble before your children? If you have the nature of God, 1 Peter 5 says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Just as Apollos received correction from Aquila and Priscilla and mightily preached the word of God, and just as Peter received strong rebuke from Paul because of his hypocrisy, which is told of us actually in the book of Galatians. They humbled themselves before people. It will alleviate a lot of pain, a lot of heartache in your life if it would be face down, face down. Stay face down. Stay before God. Stay before the word of God. Submit to people. And number three, let me end right here. Without humility, our growth is limited. Our growth is limited. When weightlifters want to gain strength in their legs, the best workout you can do, the best workout you can do to gain strength in your legs is squats. You put a bunch of weight on your shoulders and you squat and you go low. And you can sit here with all this weight on your shoulders and you can bend your knees a few inches and that doesn't do a thing. But the lower you go, the more you stretch those muscles, those little micro tears and you're challenging your muscles and you're strengthening those leg muscles and they're growing and they're strengthening and it's all because you bend low. You bend low. We're not growing stronger because we're not willing to bend. Go low. 
And so, God's intention, when we look at Galatians chapter 5, is to form his son in you, to be Christ-like. The one who is most spiritual among you is the one who's most like Christ. It doesn't matter how, 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 how much faith they have, or if they speak in tongues, or if they give their, their, their goods to the poor. If they don't have love, they're nothing. And if they're not exhibit, exhibiting Christ-like character, they're not spiritual. They're just not. And so God wants to form, here's his goal in your life. He wants to form his son in you. And you know what, what Paul said to the Galatians, the subject of this series, this book? Because they have been bewitched, because they, they, starting in the spirit, he said, starting in the spirit, do you think you're going to be perfected by works of the law and works of your flesh? You've been bewitched. You're foolish. And, and, and here's what he said to him. He says, my little children for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you. He wants to form his son in us. And how is it? How is it you can see a person who's been a Christian for 30 or 40 years and they're the same person they were 30 or 40 years earlier? They still deal with the same prevailing character flaws. They're still temperamental. They're still full of anger. They still have this raging lust. They still, they still, they still have these things that are just glaring issues and you're wondering, man, why haven't you grown? Why, why are you stunted in your growth? It's because you haven't go, gone low. You haven't humbled yourself. You haven't submitted yourself to the Lord. And it's in submitting yourself, stretching yourself, that you grow, that you increase in strength. Could you help me, please? Listen. The degree to which you choose to humble yourself is the degree to which God will lift you up. The degree to which you choose to humble yourself before God is the degree to which he would lift you up. In Proverbs it says, before a fall goes pride. And you know what comes before honor? Humility. Before honor comes humility. And when Jesus was invited to a feast, to a house of the Pharisees, he looked about and he watched and he saw how they all liked the, the, the best places and the high places. And he began to teach them. He said, when you're invited to a feast, you're invited to a dinner party, take the low seat. Take the low seat. Because when you take the low seat, or actually when you take the high seat and somebody more honorable than you comes in, you're going to be ashamed when they say, hey, go sit down there. But if you take the low seat, always take the low seat, always go low, always go to the lowest place. When you take that low seat, then the master of that feast, the person, he will say, hey, you don't belong there, come up here. And he'll put you in a more preferential place, a higher place. But you don't lift yourself up. Let the Lord do it. For whoever exalts himself will be abased, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. God does the exalted. And Jesus coming in the likeness of of flesh, taking on the form of a bondservant. He made himself subject to men. He died upon the cross, even the death of a cross. And because he did that, he has been highly exalted. And every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow. The place of glory, the place of exaltation 
is the low place. Amen. Would you stand with me? Jesus, I thank you for making these truths real to us, God. I thank you, Jesus, for your humility. I thank you, God, that you stoop down to me, God, when I'm in fear and I'm in doubt and I have a need. God, you always stoop down. You always lend your ear to me. You always share your heart with me. God, I thank you. Lord, it's not the educated, it's not the noble, it's not the rich that you're attracted to, that you even care about. It's the position of a person's heart, God. Oh, you are attracted to lowliness and humility. And it's from that place, that atmosphere and environment of humility, that everything flows and everything grows and everything increases and where blessing comes into our lives. God, make this a reality in our lives here today, God. Make this real in our lives. Let there be humility, God. And God, we have to do it ourselves. That is, we make the choice to humble ourselves. And then grace comes pouring into our lives. Strength comes pouring into our lives. Power comes pouring into our lives, God. Lord, I pray that you would destroy any self-righteousness in here, God. Let us be bankrupt in ourselves, Lord. Let us see the futility of our own works, of our own deeds to save ourselves, and look to the work of the cross, Lord Jesus.